Through the book of First Thessalonians, we began in this new epistle, the book of Thessalonians last week, and it was an expression, and this particular book is an expression of Paul's gratitude, as well as some correction and instruction, but as an expression of gratitude to God for the Thessalonians. He has a, had a fond uh, memory of how they responded to the gospel, and he pours out his thanks to the Lord, and he expresses the things that God has been doing and the things that God had done in the past. Our reading will come in the first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The scriptures read, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Oh, Father, how exciting it is simply to hear your word, and God, we pray, open our hearts that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. You know, I love testimonies. A couple weeks ago, we heard testimonies when the individuals were baptized on Easter, and testimonies were very encouraging because each testimony is a testimony of God's work of God's miracle in the life of someone. The testimonies are encouraging. It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to our faith. It's encouraging to our church to hear how God has changed someone's life. One testimony I read this past week is from about a pastor. Is Pastor Steve Yeshek of Crystal Lake, Illinois. He had uh, lost his sister, lost his sister Judy, after a five-year battle with cancer. She was a woman who, as Steve described, was a party animal. Maybe you know someone like that. A big drinker, a self-contented lifestyle. She was someone everybody loved. 
because she exuded that excitement and a thrill for life. And when Steve, however, tried to share the gospel with her, tried to share about Jesus with her over the years, she would just laugh it off and she'd keep partying. But at the age of 44, her world, her world caved in. She found out at the age of 44 that she had breast cancer. And then she learned that her husband had cancer. And then, in addition to that, she discovered her husband was having an affair. Shortly thereafter, he announced he didn't love her anymore, and he left her. It was in that context that she began to ask questions. She began to ask questions, and she soon afterwards learned about what Christ had done for her. She asked God to save her and placed her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus as her Savior. And from that time on until she died, the Lord Jesus and His Word became her priority, became her purpose in life. And with the same kind of gusto and enthusiasm she had lived a life as an unbeliever, as a heavy drinker, she now approached her new life in Christ with the same kind of enthusiasm. And her greatest aim was winning others to Jesus. And she boldly shared her faith even as she was undergoing surgery and even after surgery, praying for healing from the Lord. She ultimately came to see that the greater miracle, even though she was praying for a miracle of healing, the greater miracle was for her friends and for her family to come to know Jesus. And even as she struggled for every breath, she talked her way out of the hospital about 10 days before her death. Why? So that she could be baptized, so that she could testify publicly of what Christ had done in her life and testify of what God had done in her way, her salvation. Judy invited everyone she knew to come to that baptism service. And because of the Spirit's power and her testimony, her 84-year-old father came to faith in Christ that night and was baptized along with her ex-husband, along with a number of nieces, along with a college roommate who was a New Age cultist, along with her aunt, along with her sister, along with others. And then 10 days later, she died. But even still, more people came to Christ because Steve, her brother, read the message she had prepared for her own funeral service. And another 100 people came to Christ on that day. That's the power of a person's testimony of how when they come to Christ in repentance and faith, how God uses that testimony of a changed life to bring others to know Him. How God can use somebody who is a true Christian whose life has radically been changed by God to bring the message of salvation in their testimony of faith. And that same transformation that happened in her life happened in the Thessalonian church. As God changed their hearts of stone to a heart of flesh and he breathed new life into dead souls. And Paul in his letter here at the very first chapter expresses his gratitude his gratitude towards God, we give thanks to God, verse 2, always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. 
And constantly, he says, constantly bearing in mind their work that stemmed out of their genuine faith, their labors that stemmed out of their love for God, and their steadfastness of hope. All of these things God was doing at the present time in the life of the church. And now we go to verses 4 to 10, and Paul's expression of thankfulness as he remembers them, what God is doing now, to what God had done in the past. In verses 4 to 10, and he's thankful for four particular things. He is thankful for God sovereignly choosing them. He is thankful that Paul and his companions powerfully were used by the Holy Spirit. He's thankful for their radical change in direction in their life, and he's thankful for them and their godly witness and their testimony because all had come to hear about the church at Thessalonica. He gives thanks to God, first of all, for his power and his sovereign choice, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Verse 4, knowing, beloved by God, his brethren, who are beloved by God, he knows that they were children of God. He knows this was not a phony church. He knew that they were true brothers and sisters in Christ, and he gave thanks for that. He knew with assurance Contrary to what some might assert today that you can never really know if someone's saved or you shouldn't ever judge, he very well does that the same thing. He makes a discerning, he makes a confident statement that he knows that they are beloved by God, that they are true believers. And that is what the Apostle John, the Apostle John or writes in the first epistle of John, John, first John, so that the church would be able to discern. Because when John wrote 1 John, he wrote because they were having difficulty knowing who was a true teacher and who was a false teacher, who was a true disciple and who was a false disciple of the Lord Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. As a pattern of life, if a person is obedient to the word of God, then you know. You know if somebody knows God, has a relationship with God that is a saving relationship. And John wrote the epistle of 1 John so that his readers might have assurance of their own salvation. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you struggle with knowing, am I truly saved? Am I truly a child of God? Am I saved? Then read 1 John. John wrote it so that we might know whether or not we are a part of God's family. And here in the particular passage, this apostle, the apostle Paul, knows that these are true believers, brethren who are beloved by God and his choice, his choice of them. In the book of Ephesians, if you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, just a few books back, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, he tells us this, or he writes to the Ephesians this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. He predestined us to adoption, and he couches in the words of adoption, and also he chose us before the foundation of the world, verse 4, just like Paul writes here again, that he gives thanks, why? Knowing beloved by God, his choice of you, these Thessalonians were chosen, God chose those who were going to be his children, and he couches it in the context of adoption, that is one of the words that is used. People who adopt, it's the parents, number one, who choose to adopt. Number two, they choose which child they're going to adopt. The child doesn't choose their parents. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Do you know, those who are part of Israel who have come to know the Messiah, there's a ministry called Chosen People Ministries because it's not infrequent that the Scriptures call Israel His chosen people. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out, of, out by a mighty hand and redeemed you for the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He didn't choose Israel because they were great or mighty or he didn't look down from heaven and say, wow, what a cuddly people, they look cute. No, he chose them because of his freedom of choice. Because of his love, he kept his oath as well. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 19, but if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you, I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. As John writes of the Jesus telling his disciples in the upper room, it is by God's free and sovereign choice, and that should make us, Realize how special we are as the children of God, as people who have come to know Him. It shouldn't diminish our love for the, for the Lord. There's always something special about being chosen or being selected, whether it's kids choosing to be on a particular team. I can remember when I was a kid, you know, they'd, they'd line all of us up in front, of the, in front of the fence, and then the captains would choose, and you'd always feel special when you were chosen, and I'd always just be thankful I wasn't the last one chosen. Sometimes I was, and it made me feel bad, but being chosen was a special, special privilege, whatever it may be. Maybe you're chosen to represent your company, or maybe you're chosen to represent the government. Maybe you're chosen as a representative of your school. Maybe you're chosen to attend a particular school or attend a particular class or some sort of thing that is special only for those who are chosen. And here we are chosen by God and the power of God is displayed by His unilateral choice of us. His choice of us. And for that, Paul is grateful. Secondly, he is grateful for the power of the Spirit of God which uses people. The Spirit of God, which used him 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. See, the gospel came to them. It didn't come to them in some sort of sterile, telegraphed message. It was delivered in power, and the Spirit of God carried that along. And with the full conviction We know this is the conviction of those who were the missionaries who were there. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, these missionaries spoke with conviction. They knew the message which they had brought to the Thessalonians was a true message, a message from God that the Messiah had come, that there would be deliverance from sin, freedom from guilt, and the hope of eternal life through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is good news, and that's how we ought to share as well. To know that God's Spirit is the one that changes lives, and we have the conviction that what we're sharing is true. When I would go out with a campus crusade, when I was in college, we'd go on the campus, and it was early on that I learned that as you, you went along two by two, one person would share the gospel and the other person, their job wasn't just to stand there and listen. Their job was to pray, was to pray for the person who was sharing, was to pray for the person who was listening, that God would open their heart to the gospel, that they would be saved, to pray for that, the salvation of that individual, that the blindness of that person would be lifted and that God would save their soul. And that is what we should do when the gospel is being shared. Whether it's we're watching some sort of uh, crusade on TV, you pray for the people who would hear the gospel that would be shared. Or pray when you hear the gospel shared, when you're sharing it evangelistically or whatever it may be, our job is to pray because it is by the Spirit of God and by His power that He saves When the gospel is shared, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it says in Romans 1.16. And with full conviction, or as the New King James Version would put it, with much assurance, with much assurance, this is a message that we are sure of. We have confidence in the word of God, that the word of God teaches that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for sins, and that if we come in repentance and faith, that he will save the repentant sinner from their sins and grant to them eternal life. Not like some who don't really believe what they're saying. You know, a number of months ago, this past winter or so, there there are a couple of, of Mormon guys who stopped by my house. And I think I'm on their list. You know, they come by every so often, probably because I've let them in before and we've had some talks about whatever, but they seem to rotate, so I don't see the same guys all the time. I think they have like a four-month rotation or something, I remember. But I remember these two guys. I remember these two guys in particular. They rang the doorbell. They rang the doorbell and I opened the door and here they were, you know how it is. They have white shirts and a tie. They have a little tag and they're usually about 20 years old and it says elder so-and-so. And these guys, these two guys, they really looked like they did not want to be there. No smile, no excitement. I said, hi, how are you? You know, I never tell them I'm a pastor. I always invite them or talk to them or whatnot. I'll give it away. But they just said hi. And I remember the first thing they said. "Um, Do you believe in religion? 
I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I felt so sorry for them. I felt like, hey, no, 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 guys, this is not how you do it. You say, hi, I'm Joe, and I'm whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, no, that's not good. I'd be helping the wrong side. That's a bad one-liner. I was thinking to myself, I was caught off guard. I was, uh, yeah, yeah, and thinking I knew what they meant. And they, expressionless, said, are you happy with how the world is? And I said, um, <clears throat> no, but, and you know, that is a prime example of what it means to be unconvincing. No conviction about what they're trying to share. The message that they had, whatever it was, they certainly weren't excited about it. They weren't looking forward to it. Maybe they had gotten a bad rap down the house and across the way. I have a number of folks, at least my neighbors are Christians. I don't know. But that's certainly the message that Paul carried to these Thessalonians was brought with conviction, with assurance, full assurance that what they were saying was true. And that is how we ought to share as well. I mean, when you share the gospel, let me share with a smile, at least look pleasant. You know, look like this is really, I mean, goodness, it should bring joy. This is good news. And be prepared, be prepared. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, Sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord, Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you. Be prepared. Share your testimony. The most innocuous way to, to share the gospel is just to share about what God has done in your own life. And in that testimony, you include the gospel, what you understood, who you know Christ to be, and what he did, and what you did in response. Be confident in the word of God that it's the power of the gospel that changes lives. Thirdly, Paul was grateful. He was grateful for changed lives because they had turned from being an imitator to those who were imitated. You also became imitators, verse 6, of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The reason Paul was so very filled with gratitude is because they followed his example and they followed the Lord. They became imitators of these missionaries. They became imitators of the Lord. That word for, for imitator is the Greek word mimetai, from which we get the word mimic, from which we get the word mimic. Now, you can imagine, they came from a, from a pagan background, not understanding what a Christian is to do, how they were to behave, how they were to conduct themselves, and they followed Paul, and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know everyone needs a model? Everyone follows somebody. That's what you and I do. We copy people ever since we're born. Those of your parents know your children mimic you. They follow you. Their mannerisms or the way they think, many times the way they, they, will, they will talk or they're, they're, the way they handle life's problems or whether they're neat or meticulous or whatever. Not perfectly, not exactly, but in many ways. I had somebody say to me this, this past week, you know, I, I, I knew, I knew I never wanted to do some of the things that my mother did, but I became the same way. And many times we do, we are fallback as to what we've been shown and what we know, and we copy, we copy others from social skills to relationships to following the Lord. And we need good role models. I remember many years ago when I was younger, 
was going to be at this very formal meal. This very formal meal, I remember talking with my mother about this because I knew there were going to be situations that, that were kind of awkward. I mean, they, 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 they had more forks than I knew what to do with on the table. They had multiple spoons and a plate on top of a plate. You know, I, I didn't know what you do. How do you use all of these things? After all, I grew up, you know, sure, one fork or one plate or whatever it might be. Many times it was just one bowl. You know, I've never watched people tilt the bowl away from you to scoop out the soup. I guess it's supposed to be polite. I watched people put the bowl to their mouth and just shovel it on in with chopsticks. They were good for eating. They were good for serving yourself. They're good for serving others. They're good for catching flies. Whatever it might be, that's what you use chopsticks for. Everything. Now, I know. And what did I do? They told me, if you don't know what to do, you won't eat first. You follow somebody else. You do what they did. And my prayer was, I hope they know what they're doing. Otherwise, I won't know. But suffice it to say, we all follow people. We all imitate others. And Paul was able to say, just as he said to the Corinthians, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. They followed the example of these godly missionaries. And we need to be examples for others to follow as well. They followed them even in much tribulation. Much tribulation, it says in the text. They were receptive to the word. So what happened in Acts? If you turn in the book of Acts there, what happened to the Thessalonians? Acts chapter 17, it gives a history in the background of what happened to these Thessalonians during that time, how it was difficult for them. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. We look at verse 4 to begin, and some of them were persuaded after they had preached Christ, persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Remember what they did? They left for Berea, about 50 miles away. And when they were in Berea later on, the Jews from Thessalonica, some came down to Berea and caused trouble there, and Paul had to leave there as well. But despite the persecution, despite the fact that their friends... Some brethren, it says, and Jason were dragged before the city authorities despite the fact that there was a mob that had formed and set the city, set the entire city in an uproar. They attacked his house, but they still received the word of God. They still received the word of God in much joy. They didn't avoid hearing the word, even though it was difficult. They didn't avoid hearing from God. 
They didn't avoid becoming a Christian or gathering to listen. They didn't avoid the church because it was a difficult place to be and that the city hated them. I remember many years ago, it's almost 30 years now, back in the late 80s and doing some short-term work and going into China, bringing, smuggling some books and tapes and materials for the underground church there. And I still remember the time that I went traveling alone with a high fever in that day and they had it all set up. I was with OMF and there would be another stranger on the other side of the border after I got in to meet me and there would be a password that they would say, I would say, and we'd know who each other was. And when I did that, there was a van that was standing there and they whisked me away in an unmarked van to take the materials as well as to show me the underground church. And I remember visiting the underground church. We visited three of them, and two of them were truly underground, truly churches that, were, that had people who had been persecuted for their faith, people who had to gather because there was danger for them. There was danger of arrest or punishment of some type. They would tell me their testimony. And I remember one man as... I left that place, and I'll still remember it probably for the rest of my life, is that he shared some of the needs that were there, and he said, don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. But to think that was nearly 30 years ago, and some still gather, depending on where you're at in the country, depending upon where you're at, they gathered in secret to hear the Word of God. They gathered in spite of the fact that They could be arrested or fined. They gathered in spite of the fact that the authorities would have spies. They gathered to hear the word of God because it was treasured for them, just like these Thessalonians. And the question for us is, would we do the same? Would we do the same to risk your life, your well-being, to risk arrest, to gather, and to come to church here if that were the case? Would you risk that? Would you risk that to gather, to hear, and to worship? Or would you be so dissuaded? What does Satan have to dangle in front of you in order to keep you from hearing the Word of God? What does Satan have to put in front of you? A job that you would have to work on Sundays every Sunday? What would it be? Would it be the amount of money? Would it be something else? Would you be risking your life as these Christians did to gather to hear the word of God? And these Thessalonians, the text says, received the word of God in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't in begrudging. It wasn't in some sort of resentment that they had to now that they were Christians. They received it and they gathered with joy, with joy of the Holy Spirit. What a joy it would be to gather with your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. It was such a joy for me to meet them. And I learned so much by their testimony. And that joy, do you know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's also a command. It's also a command to be joyful. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And as if you didn't catch it in the first phrase, Paul says, again, I will say rejoice in the latter half of that verse. A couple of chapters earlier, 
In Philippians chapter 2, 17 and 18, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, in other words, he was going to suffer and he might just well die, he says. The sacrifice and the service of your, for your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me, he says to the Philippians. Is it a joy? Is it a joy to gather? Is it a joy to worship? Is it a joy for you? You can choose joy. You can choose to have a joyful heart no matter what your circumstances might be. Billy Graham, in his autobiography, Just As I Am, tells a testimony about how happiness is not dependent upon wealth or fame, but by character. He writes, Ruth, Ruth is his wife who's passed. Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of this on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. Quote, I am the most miserable man in the world, he said. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as miserable as hell. We prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Later that afternoon, we met with a pastor of a local Baptist church. He was an Englishman, and he, was too, he too was 75, a widower who spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. I don't have two pounds to my name, he said with a smile, but I am the happiest man on the island, unquote. Billy asked Ruth after they left, who do you think is the richer man? She didn't have a reply because they both already knew the answer, unquote. Do you have that kind of joy? That you would be able to say like this poor man, a widower who was taking care of his two invalid sisters, I don't have two pounds to my name, but I am the happiest man on this island. Do you have that joy? That joy that only comes when you see things from God's point of view. That joy that is produced by the Spirit of God. That even in tribulation, these Thessalonians received the Word of God and had a life of joy. And as such, as such, when they followed Paul, they followed the Christ, they received the Word, they had joy. They became an example, the text says. They became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became an example of how eagerly they received the Word of God from imitating to becoming imitate, imitated. They were now the role models. They were now the role models. And we ought to be too if we've lived the Christian life knowing the power of God, knowing that God is a gracious God, knowing all that we know about God and who He is and having the gospel. Their testimony was astounding. Verse 8, the power of a godly testimony, the fourth thing that Paul gives thanks to God about. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And that word sounded forth is a word from which it means to blast forth, to sound intensely. It's used in the New Testament, uh, or I should say New Testament term was used for a blaring trumpet or a rolling thunder. It sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Their changed lives were such a change that they didn't have to say anything. When they met people who had heard about the Thessalonian church, they had already heard. They had already heard, and they were telling Paul and Silvanus and Timothy about what had happened. I heard this about what happened. I heard this about how they responded, et cetera, et cetera. Did you hear what happened? And they would go on. They had no need to say anything. Imagine that kind of reputation. Imagine that kind of reputation that a church would have for the glory of God. Imagine what people would say. Two aspects in particular about their testimony, a radical repentance and a heavenly mindset. Verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a true and living God. That word turned comes from the New Testament term epistrepho, from somebody who is a sinner's true conversion, turning in the other direction. This is a description of what true repentance is. When someone comes to Christ, they are going one direction. And not only does repentance or metanoneo, which is a change of mind, not only is there an intellectual change of mind, but there's a change in heart. By God's grace, our hearts are turned in the opposite direction with a desire, not to walk in our way, but to walk in God's way. And this is what the Thessalonians did. By example, not living our own life, but living God's life, a desire to turn in repentance, a repudiation of their former idolatry, and they turned to God. They turned to God, not just to turn, they turned to serve the true, the one and only living God. Do you understand salvation is not just an intellectual ascent? Yeah, I believe. That's right. I believe Jesus died, and yeah, I understand that. It's not an intellectual ascent to a set of facts, because many people can say they believe. James talks about this. Even the demons believe. You think the demons doubt that Jesus exists? No. Think the demons doubt that the word of God is the word of God? No. They very well know what God has said. They very well know that Jesus is who he is. But the question is, when somebody comes to the Savior, do they come with a repentant heart, one that says, by God's grace, I no longer want to live my life I want to turn and live the way that God wants me to live. Turn to God from idols that they might serve. God is not some vending machine that we just come to and caters to our self-centered needs. As some people might come to Christ thinking, well, if I come to Christ, I'll be able to pray and ask God for whatever I want. The researcher Christian Smith in his book, Soul Searching, the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers, concludes that many young adults have a faith that is characterized by, quote, moralistic therapeutic deism. According to this view of God, if we live good lives and we're kind to others, then God will provide, quote, therapeutic benefits to us. 
like self-esteem and happiness. Other than that, God is not involved much in our world. This view of God has a profound effect on prayer. Smith, in his book, found that American teens personally prayed frequently. 40% prayed daily or more, and only 15% said they'd never prayed. However, their motivation for prayer was largely focused on meeting their own needs. Some of the teens interviewed said, if I have a problem, I go pray. It helps me deal with problems. It calms me down for the most part. Praying just makes me feel more secure, like there's something there helping me out. Or I would say prayer is an essential part of my success. But Smith also found that many young Americans' prayers lacked any sense of repentance or adoration. Smith writes, quote, this is not a religion of repentance from sin. Again, he concludes that this distant God is not demanding because his job is to solve problems and make people feel good. There is nothing here to evoke wonder and admiration, unquote. Is that the kind of God that you believe in? God that is here to serve us? That's not the kind of God that these Thessalonians turn to. They turn from idols to serve a living and a true God, a God who is the God of the universe, who calls us to a life of self-sacrifice, who calls us to a life of surrender. The God of the Bible is a great and wondrous God. Secondly, not only was he grateful for their true repentance, but a mindset on the future, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Their perspective was heaven. Their perspective was heaven. The son of God was going to come, rescuing them from the wrath to come, the idea of wrath, God's judgment to come, waiting to go home for Jesus to take them home. There's one testimony by a man named Brian Chappelle who writes a book on preaching, but in his book, The Wonder of It All, he writes, for his first sermon in a preaching class, Lawrence, an African student, chose a text describing the joys we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us to our heavenly home. I've been in the United States for several months, he said. I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too, but I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven because everyone has so much in this country. No one preaches about heaven. People don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little, so we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it, unquote. The question that is, is what kind of testimony do we have? What would people say about you? What would people say about your Christian life? Or do they even know that you are a Christian? Whether it's at school or at work, do they know? What would they say if they had never met you before, they'd never heard of your name, and they looked at your Facebook page? Would they say, this person, wow, 
they really love God. They really love the Bible, and they love their church. They certainly have a lot of great times in fellowship or whatever it might be. Sounds interesting. Maybe I'll go visit sometime. Or would they say they sure love their food, their vacations, their car, their dog. They have a nice family. Seems like very nice. All the things they get to do. What would they say about you, how you present yourself, how you conduct yourself? Or would they say even that you know Jesus, who is the most important person in your life as a Christian? Would they say that that is a reflection of your love? These Thessalonians here, their testimony was so powerful, they became an example to all in Macedonia and Achaia, and they were the talk of Asia Minor. They were the ones whose testimony went out because of how they received the word, because of their joy in their life, even though they faced difficult times, they still received the word with joy. And their testimony spread far and wide like a trumpet did. And for that, Paul gave thanks. Paul gave thanks for their testimony and for what God had done in their lives that they were chosen, beloved of God. Now, he gives thanks for what God is continuing to do in their life, their labor, their faith, their steadfastness of hope, their work, etc. What has God done in your life? And what kind of testimony do you have? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have given to us, O Father, an example for us, not only for that time, but also for us, that we can see that the power of your spirit and the power of your word changes lives. And Father, we pray that because of our testimony, you, O God, would be made known. You, O God, would be made great. That you would help us, O Father, to be bold to have confidence in the power of your word and the power of the spirit that changes hearts, redeems souls for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.